Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah. The charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Hey guys, you might have heard that Stitcher Premium just launched this awesome, 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 awesome new show. Like, I have seen everybody in my Twitter feed talking about it. It is called My Dead Wife, The Robot Car. And what it is, is it's one part throwback to the old, awesome radio serials of, like, the 30s, where you hear a whole soundscape and you're plunged into a narrative design improvised by the one and only Matt Besser, who you guys all know is one of the founding, founding geniuses of UCB. And what Matt has created is this show where he is playing a character who has become one of the first testers of self-driving cars, except he finds out that the AI personality of its operating system is his dead ex-wife. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, this is so fun. It's 10 episodes. It's quick. It's addictive. It's awesome. And it's got everybody in it, not just Besser, but it's got Horatio Sands, Daniel Schneider, John Gabrus. It's awesome. And you can listen right now on Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcherpremium.com slash robot and use the promo code unspooled for a free month of Stitcher Premium if you don't already have it. You should totally have Stitcher Premium, by the way. It's amazing. But if you want to just check it out, put a foot in the water, stitcherpremium.com slash robot. Use promo code unspooled. You can check out Robot Car. You can check out everything they've got on Stitcher Premium. Your mind will be blown. So enjoy. The year is 1982, and Reese's Pieces sales are about to skyrocket. The film? E.T. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And this is a show where we go through AFI's top 100 best films of all time and see if they still stand the test of time. Uh, today we are talking about E.T., but last week we were talking about Taxi Driver. And, and Paul, I was dreading this episode. Yeah, but people's reactions were pretty interesting. I think people were conflicted with it and on the side of you and on the side of me, I feel like it's it's a good movie for a dialogue around, which makes me feel like this movie is relevant like we were talking about. Yeah, I really liked the conversations that people were having. You know, there was a person um, who tweeted, like, giving kind of their whole 
relationship to watching Taxi Driver as they grew up. That at one mm-hmm. point they remembered watching the scene where Scorsese is in the back of the trunk. Uh, sorry, back of the trunk, like he's being kidnapped. In the back of the car, of the back of the taxi, talking about like, do you know what a woman looks like when you put a gun up there? Yeah. And when he was a kid, he thought it was funny. And he was saying, and now you watch it again and it isn't funny. And like that shift that Taxi Driver happens. Yeah. At least it's alive. It's organic that way. Yeah, I think it's a movie that makes people uncomfortable. And I think if watched with the right eyes, it is a powerful statement. But I think last week you and I got into this big conversation, like, should three collaborations with the same director and actor be on the AFI list? There's limited space here, but uh, De Niro and Scorsese are on the list three times. And we put it to you, the audience, like, what do you think? What would you knock off the list? Now, this is a very contentious question. People are like, (laughs) you should never knock it off the list. There's no other better film. But, you know, a lot of people uh, were... Kind of in your camp, getting rid of Goodfellas is a big deal. People are like, get rid of it, get rid of it. Other people are like, Raging Bull is a perfect film. You can't lose it. And then other people are like, Taxi Driver is the quintessential American film. But in our poll, if you had to kick one of them off, it was Raging Bull by Which 43%. is surprising because that's the one that's ranked the highest. It's in the top 10 yeah. of the AFI. What do you think that is? I don't know. Some people were tweeting like, my bet is just people haven't seen Raging Bull. Right, yeah. Which is an option. Um that would maybe be my get, my butt too, because I think it is like the least movie postered out of all of them. Maybe. Yeah. Well, it's, again, it's it's something that's probably less in pop culture. So when it's less in pop culture, it kind of falls by the wayside. You know, we're not we're not really talking about like, you know, like that transformation that uh, that De Niro did in that movie is kind of even overshadowed by what he did in Untouchables to a certain degree. It's true, and I mean. I think our unspooled listeners are brilliant enough that I trust them that it's not because it's a black and white movie. I mean, <laughs> I didn't which, even think about that, yeah, but yes, which maybe. would be the thing that if it was like general <laughs> consumption, I would question. Yes. Uh, so, well, but we're going to obviously get into Raging Bull one of these weeks. So that will be an interesting conversation to we, hear what you all think and what we all think. We will um, totally get there. And by the way, I'm all for kicking one off the list, man. I mean, I think three <laughs> is way too much. I mean, you know what's not even on this list? I mean, besides, like, films directed by women at all. Yeah. Um, and one film directed by a person of color. We don't even have, like, When Harry Met Sally on this list, which I find shocking. So, well, I mean, yeah. I would give up two Scorseses for When Harry Met Sally if we're going to, like, play hardball. No, but I think that these are the m- movies that kind of create the fabric of our world. And it, it, it becomes an interesting conversation. I mean, because it's also saying, like, are these better? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a big debate, and I understand why this list is very contentious. And maybe, you know, like the Academy, uh, maybe hopefully the AFI brings in some younger voters to kind of help suss out a more... uh, A more, I mean, honestly, when I look at this list, I see a lot of guys who are like 20, 30 in the 70s and everything they love is now the most important film. So maybe some people who have some different things they love just as much. uh, Very true. And you know what? Thank you for keeping these conversations alive on Twitter and on our uh, Unspooled group on Facebook. A big shout out to Kim Troxall, who's been making all these amazing uh, like uh, images for us. They've been awesome. And she's actually going back to start at the very beginning. So that's That's so cool. Her stuff has been so cool. She did this awesome one for Citizen Kane. And also, I want to give a shout out to the people who made us gorgeous taxi driver posters. Oh, yeah. We had some great ones. I mean, I want to give a shout out to at Zambu Studio. I'm going to give a shout out to SML. I'm going to give a shout out to Why That LPF Face. (laughs) It went to Sketchy Sethi. They were all awesome, guys. I have been loving this. Thank you guys for listening and getting involved in this conversation. And um, if you like this show, please recommend it to your friends. Rate and review us on iTunes. It helps us so much. 
Also, I have a brief plug, Amy. Uh, I did this movie with Chance the Rapper and uh, Saucy Beats from Atlanta. It's called Slice, and it is now out on VOD. It's a very campy, cheesy horror movie that is a down-and-dirty, like, lo-fi indie movie that we shot out in Chicago that A24 got behind. And, uh, oh, I it, love A24. They're the tastemakers, man. They're tastemakers, and it was a super fun thing. We were just in Chicago last night and did this big premiere for it. So uh, hope you all dig it or check it out. It's, you know, it's a midnight B movie, and if you're into that kind of a thing, I think you're going to like it. Can I say how much I like that you just used the word cheesy to describe a movie about pizza? Oh, I mean, I, I was intentional about that. <laughs> I got my I got my pizza puns ready. All right, so we're talking about a little green man. His name is E.T. Uh, we know it stands for extraterrestrial, but we wondered what you all thought it stood for. Uh, E.T. obviously stands for energy touch because of his magic finger. I think E.T. should stand for extremely terrifying I saw that movie when I was seven years old, and it scared the hell out of me. If E.T. didn't stand for extraterrestrial, I think it would have to stand for endless treacle. I was thinking E.T. like Entertainment Tonight. Uh, Remember when David Letterman used to make fun of John Tess? E.T. stands for Elvis Transformed. Hey, I was little enough when E.T. was out that I only remembered the words Elliot and that glowing finger. So I'm going to have to go with Elliot Toucher. Extra testicle is what E.T. stands for. I think E.T. stands for Elliot's Tormentor, because I was named Elliot after the movie, and I've lived 28 years with people sticking their finger in my face and doing the alien boy. I, I thought all those were pretty good, except for the one about Elvis and testicles. I feel like, you know, guys, it's E.T. is not standing for extra testicles. All right, <laughs> let's, let's have a serious discussion about E.T. right now. Amy, number 24 on the AFI's 2007 Best Movies of All Time list, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. That's high. That is pretty high. Let's uh, tell people, if you've not seen E.T., it stars uh, Drew Barrymore, Henry Thomas, uh, D. Wallace, Peter Coyote. It's directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Melissa Matheson. And how would you describe the plot? The plot is... Tiny, unwieldy alien lands on Earth, uh, is adopted by a young boy who treats him like stuffed animal slash dog, and scary, scary men who we only ever see from crotch down come in and take alien away. What to do? How to get alien back <laughs> to this planet? Well, to be fair, the, the, the crotch down men come in very late in the game. Before that, it's a lot of just boy and alien uh, good times. And before the crotch has got to stomp all in. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go right into it. Um... This movie, to me, is synonymous with my childhood in a way that I find it hard for me to critically look at it because it's imprinted on me. Like, this is me looking at Henry Thomas and going, like, I want to be him because I'm younger than him when at the point that I'm seeing it, it's me having... E.T. things in my house. It's me, like, hearing about an E.T. sequel growing up. So I am, like... And excited about it. And by the way, I found out there was one. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, it's so hard for me because every element of it, from the John Williams score to just seeing E.T., it elicits, uh, you know, th- this kind of response that it, it makes me feel a childhood. Yeah, I feel the same way. Like, it's hard to imagine E.T. is just a movie, which I think is the problem right. we're going to get to when we get to Star Wars, too. Like, these aren't really movies to us. They are, right. like— 
the bathwater in which we were raised as children. If we are in a fish tank, if I am a goldfish and you are a guppy, or we can reverse yeah. that, however you want to do no, it. I'll be a guppy. Yeah, like ET is the tank. And yeah. Maybe Star Wars is the water. Like I don't know how to look outside of it. Well, I think the reason why you know we are so. We are, you know, in the same age group. Like, we came up in this world where, like, Spielberg is the director. Like, I don't think I knew directors' names when I was a kid, aside from Steven Spielberg and maybe George Lucas. But really, Spielberg was the name, and you saw every one of his movies, you know? That's super true. I hadn't really thought about that, that he is the first director whose name I ever, ever knew of. I think Hitchcock may be second, and That's, I don't know why. No, I was going to say the same <laughs> yeah. thing. No, because I think my dad showed me, like, Hitchcock films. And, yeah. But, like, and you understood I, that he was in the movie, you know? Yeah, I knew that Hitchcock was, like, the guy with the silhouette. You know, yes. He was, like, the Jonathan Gold of the movies, and you're going <laughs> to see that silhouette. And it was a game. So I think I, like, Hitchcock only for the game aspect as a kid because I didn't understand anything yet. But Steven Spielberg, I mean, we've been told since we were a kid that Steven Spielberg is the greatest director who's ever lived. I mean, that's just a statement. Like, I don't even think it was ever a question. We just grew up in that world. And he still is making movies, so therefore he still is. And he's someone who has created and defined such a style that has influenced so many things. I mean, from genres of film to directors. It, he, his imprint is gigantic. If I'm just going to keep using this fish tank analogy for like no reason, except that I'm amused by it right now. I mean, he has put in every wall of that fish tank. He's got your E.T. wall. He's got your Jaws wall, which mm-hmm. are two very different films. 100%. He's got your Schindler's List wall. like, And he's got, we could pick anything for the last wall. I don't even know what we would pick for the last wall. Like, I mean, uh, always. Okay. No. <laughs> you you're always. No, but well. I mean, but you, but yeah, but I mean, Indiana Jones is what I would say. Like the Indiana Jones wall is a yeah. big one. He surrounds you with every genre. He does every type of film. You can't be like, oh, I don't like horror movies, therefore I don't like Steven Spielberg because he made Jaws. Like that doesn't count because he made everything else. You're trapped in the world of Spielberg. So that's kind of how I came into watching ET. I'm like. Here's Steven Spielberg, who has set up blueprints in many genres of how to do this right. And so many imitators have come in to do versions of what Spielberg has done so well, and yet they deviate from the blueprint. And watching E.T., I go, well, we have made this movie so many times, but not like this. And and it, whether it's like having more of a villain, quote unquote, as you know your antagonist, this movie doesn't really have a villain. There are adults that are looking for E.T., but I wouldn't call them villains. Yeah, you there's know? not like lead adult with a mustache who's like, where is that thing? I want yeah. to dissect it. You know, and you'd be seeing him beat through beat throughout the whole film. That doesn't yeah. exist. Like Steven Spielberg, what I like about it is he takes away all of that. Like the villains, quote unquote, unquote, yeah. unquote, unquote are just, like, shadows. We see, like, these black shadows at the beginning chasing E.T. through the woods. We see these, like, cars where we know that somebody's in the car. Right. But he doesn't ever make them people because he's keeping you, my impression is, he's keeping you in E.T. and Henry's point of view. They have no idea what's happening. Well, and also at their literal point of view as their height because a lot of the adults are shot literally from the waist down. Yeah, it's like a Peanuts version of the world. Yeah. You know, Uh, none of the adults are individualized except for his mom. And you can kind of tell that Steven Spielberg is smart enough to know that Dee Wallace is living this whole crazy drama about her husband going away to Mexico with this chick and she's stuck with these three kids. Like there's scenes where the phone rings and she picks up and she's like, hurrah, and talking on the phone loudly. So he's aware that she's living this whole other movie that we don't get to see, but he keeps us with the kids. Also on this note about how all of E.T. is done from this kid's eye view, 
I mean, I want to talk about how the adults sound to the kids. I mean, they're not quite like the whole peanuts wah, 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 wah thing exactly. But here's a scene from late in the film where all of these doctors have invaded their house. This scene is nothing but the, to me, equivalent of like wah, 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 because they're talking forever. And I don't understand a thing they're saying. And like Elliot doesn't understand a thing they're saying. And when you hear this all together... It is so peanutsy. It is so crazy. It is so nuts. Let's listen to it. Cut five for Kilo. CBP line can help. I think you get more information with Swan Gangs. Oxygen saturation is eighty-two percent on room air. You're scaring him. None detected. You're scaring him. Respiratory rate twelve. Good air entry, but decreased tidal volume on the boy. Oh my God! It's so funny. I didn't even realize that. Get a hypothermia blanket and some warm Leave him alone. Leave him alone. I can take care of him. Get a Doppler scope in here and set me up for a 2D cardiac echo. Skin is cool and diaphoretic. Consider all shock He's not perfusing at all. He needs anotropic support. pH is down to 7.03. He's got a metabolic acidosis. That is amazing. That's like they took every doctor show and just mixed all the audio tracks. How could all that be happening to this one little guy? When oh. I hear that, all I hear is wah, 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 Oh, my God. Uh, I think the one thing that really pulled me into this movie and watching it again, I just saw it last year at the Hollywood Bowl, which was an amazing experience to see it with a live orchestration. But um, this is probably one of the most astute versions of family life. I feel like these kids felt realized and they didn't feel like precocious kids that you see in films with these big, bold personalities. I mean, I would argue that even a movie like Goonies, which he produced, the kids are almost, you know, they're almost sitcom-y in their personalities. Here, the big brother isn't like, get the fuck out of here. You know, he, he is, but he's also caring. You see the dynamic. And I think there's something about the writing here that just pulls you in. And I think that reality allows you to buy the reality of this alien living with them, too, because everyone in this movie reacts to aliens the way that you should react to aliens. I really do believe this. I, when I watch a movie, it's like, yeah, that's how you would react. Like, there is no one has any chill, ultimately, when they see this alien. Yeah, I actually want to play a scene from the dinner table. From this dinner table they have that, to me, looks like a pizza hut. Did you think this house looked like a pizza hut? I was I like, like, what is with all this, like, lowered dropped stained glass? Or did Pizza Hut go, hey, you know what? <laughs> Let's make our restaurants like E.T.'s house. You're right. I'm too young. I don't know which came first. <laughs> and I want to listen for a couple of things here. One, this movie is real about how kids can be insensitive. Mm-hmm. Elliot. Elliot, our hero, is the insensitive one here. Two, the older brother is actually the one who gets it and has a sensitive moment, so he's not the dick. Right. And three, at the end of it, I think they state what the entire point of E.T. is. Sit down. Maybe you ought to call your father and tell him about it. I can't. He's in Mexico with Sally. Awkward looks. Where's Mexico? Excuse me. I'm gonna kill you. If you ever see it again, whatever it is, don't touch it. Just call me and we'll have somebody come and take it away. Like the dog catcher? But they'll give it a lobotomy or do experiments on it or something. 
It's your turn to do the dishes, fellas. I sat and cleared. I sat and cleared. I did breakfast. I did breakfast. What's the matter, Mom? It's Mexico. Damn it, why don't you grow up? Think how other people feel for a change. I mean, think about how other people feel for a change. I mean, this is a movie that's about empathy. This is a movie about how Elliot learns to care about other people's feelings through this guy named E.T. And they keep drilling this point home and home and home again. You know, like his older brother says later, one of the guys is like, Elliot thinks his thoughts. And he says, no, Elliot feels his feelings. I mean, this is a movie about teaching kids how to feel, how to feel for your mom, how to feel for everything. Well, it's interesting you say that because... I didn't even put that all together until I was kind of doing my research and looking at all these notes. Like, this is really a big idea movie. It's a drama, I would argue, more than it is an action-adventure film. And I think in watching it this time, I realized as a kid why I didn't find it as fulfilling as, like, Star Wars. Because it's a more adult film than I think it's acknowledged for. Uh, Steven Spielberg had a very interesting thing on 60 Minutes about why he wanted to make this movie. Without getting too sappy here, one of the things that I was trying to do with E.T., maybe the, the most essential thing, was to make a movie about love and about emotional ties between people of all races. We immediately accept E.T. because he's from outer space. Uh, why do we not accept our brothers here on Earth because they're from another country or they're, they're from another neighborhood? When he said that, I was like, oh, wow. Like, he was working on a kind of multiple levels. That's true. I'm thinking about how in the movie there's a scene where Dee Wallace is reading to uh, to Drew Barrymore, and she's reading her uh, Peter Pan. She's like, mm-hmm. do you believe in fairies? Do you believe? And that's the story that puts its theme really forward right out yeah. there. But this movie, when it ends— most of the last bit of the ending is pretty much a silent film. Actually, this whole film, I feel like, is pretty much a silent film in a yeah. lot of ways. It could play totally silent. And he's just quiet, and he's looking at E.T., and he's crying, and nobody says, but you learn to love, honey. Do you know why it's pretty much a silent movie at the end? Why? Uh, well, so John Williams did the score, and it's you know a magical, beautiful score. And he was having a lot of trouble with the end of the film. So Spielberg said to him, all right, you know what? I want you to do the music that you want to do and let it ebb and flow the way that you think orchestrally it should work. And I will recut the film to the way that you scored, which is totally the different way of how movies are scored. Movies are scored to picture. You know, you see what's going on. You hit the moments. You, you know, you're reacting to what you're seeing. But Spielberg let John Williams create something and then edit it to that, which kind of reminded me of kind of a silent film in a way, that he is letting the music provide the emotion. And that's what you're really listening to in that whole sequence from when the bikes take off all the way to the spaceship at the end. That's true. It's like, I'm tempted to play so much of the music here. Oh, I know. I mean, because yeah. we all know the theme. We all know like, dun na 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 I'm doing yeah. that horribly. That's not the theme It, it almost sounded like the Batman theme right there for a second. <laughs> I am not a composer at all. But there's other bits in this music I just want to pop out and look at for a second. Let's do this little snippet of the opening music, which sounds like nothing else in the film. You know, it's so interesting that you play this, because I wrote down when I first started watching it, this movie is creepier than I remembered. And the music and the font, you know, that the font has grown to be cute, 
But when you watch it here, it's creepy. It's like Suspiria colors. I mean, this movie is basically black, purple, and red. I mean, all of it is black, yeah, purple, and you're red. Right. Red hearts, red sweatshirts, purple fonts, purple lighting. Yeah. It's creepy. And then we jump into our introduction of E.T., which I love because they do this almost like a horror film. Yeah. We're seeing it through E.T.'s eyes. It's like the Friday the 13th Michael Myers POV mm-hmm. shot in the woods. You're looking around. And we're learning a couple things right away about who E.T. is before we even see him. Like, you're hearing his heartbeat. You're connected to him Oh, yeah. Audially, before you even see what he looks like. But, but you you're know- seeing glimpses of him, and he looks foreign, and he, he's he's just, you're curious. You know, you don't know what's what you're exactly seeing. Yeah. Is that a full body? Is that somebody crawling around? Because at this point, we know what E.T. looks like. We, as a culture, knows what E.T. looks like. But at, when you've seen that movie the first time, what the fuck is this going to be? You don't. You have no idea. And But you're inside him in a way that makes you love him. It's not scary. You hear his breathing. You right. You know, you hear that little... A little heartbeat. And you're learning stuff from what you're seeing him doing because he's foraging. Like, he's looking for plants. He's doing smart things. You see him, like, you see a bunny that's, like, not afraid of him. There's this peacefulness to it. He's nerdy. And then you get this one little glimpse of personality because everybody on his ship starts to go away. And he doesn't get on because he's curious. We know that he's a little bit different than the other ones. He's not completely in lockstep. I totally agree. And, you know, there's somebody that can maybe tell us the story um, who I think also is very much like this. His name is Michael Jackson, and this is Michael Jackson narrating what you just described. What? The crew came out. Odd little beings, moving quietly through the leaves. Gathering, gathering. A blackberry bush, a rose, a tiny cedar tree. When suddenly, man came. <laughs> Amy, that is uh, from one of the things that I owned as a kid. It would say, uh, like a storybook that you would listen to. Michael Jackson narrated it because he just loved E.T. You know, so much that he wanted to be involved in some way. And so you can hear clips of the movie and Michael Jackson narrating the whole story. He's the narrator. It's on YouTube. But I just thought it was so funny to hear Michael Jackson being the voice of E.T. because he is exactly like the creature you described, a little different than the rest, a little nerdy, but uh, a little special. A little special, a little alien. I mean, and we even know that E.T. is fragile. We see that he's like short and vulnerable. Like Mm -hmm. we get this sense of scale even before the men appear. Yeah. But then when we actually get to see E.T.'s face, I mean, here's what I love about his design. He is basically all eyebrows. You know, like eyebrows Mm -hmm. on a dog are what make you think like a dog is like sensitive or sad or guilty Mm -hmm. or whatever. And E.T. is nothing but eyebrows. And they're like moving up and down. You know, he's so- Eyebrows and neck. Eyebrows and neck. (laughs) I love it when his neck stretches. Because when that stretches, that's like the most alien thing you really see about him because you're suddenly like- there can't be a person in there. Yeah. There was. Right. But you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's when you know it's not just dude in like a creature suit. Well, do you know who he was modeled after? Hmm. E.T. was a mix of Carl Sandburg, the poet, uh, Albert Einstein, and a pug dog. That's how they kind of created his face. Aww. Yeah. It's funny. We call him E.T., you know, and they never kind of find out what his real name is. You know, his name is not E.T. It's, uh, it's Zrek. What? Yes, his he is uh, Zrek. His, Zrek. It was from he's a, Polish. Well, it's Z R E C K, and he is you know neither male or female. He is from a culture of uh, of plants. He's a plant like creature that's over ten million years old. E T 
is over t- or I should say Zrek is over 10 million years old. And you that- know, I like that he's neither male or female because Henry Thomas seems very upset about like establishing that E.T. is a boy. Like he gets so mad when right. E.T. is in a wig and E.T. would be like, we are gender fluid. It's cool, bro. Like stop <laughs> with your like 80s categorization. <laughs> oh, wait, but can I play one more John Williams moment that stands out to me? Because, okay, it kind of sounds almost like he's ripping himself off. Oh, it has a very Raiders, Raiders kind of meets Star Wars theme. Exactly. Oh, yeah. It's kind of a mix in between both. Yeah. Oh, wow. But definitely Vader theme right now. You know, we talked about this idea that, you know, in the film, you know, uh, there are no villains. But this introduction to Peter Coyote is... It seems villainous. And then when you actually get to talk to him, he's so sweet. He's, he's great. Like, this guy, I wanted to find an alien my entire life. Does mean so much to me. You know that Peter Coyote auditioned to play Indiana Jones? No, I didn't know that. Yes. And apparently when he came into audition, he like tripped over a lamppost. And like Lucas and Spielberg thought it was so funny. And they're like, oh, this guy's hilarious. He can't be Indiana Jones. But when they came to E.T., he's like, oh, he would be perfect for that. Which is even funnier to me because it's like, this is not a funny role, but like he made them laugh in an Indiana Jones audition. And then they were like, that guy would be the heavy in our E.T. film. Oh, maybe they thought he was vulnerable. But I love this idea that like if you're a kid in 82, you have seen Star Wars. Yeah. And he's priming you in the back of your head, like be freaked out. I know you know what the sound is. Do you think it's that conscious or do you think it's just John Williams going, I am creating like a kind of a strong entrance because i mean like that's you know whenever you hear that theme with vader it's when he's kind of marching into something i don't know it's like his march breathing (sighs) interesting interesting (laughs) i don't know i mean there's a lot in here that i wonder how conscious it is like in the end aren't you sort of wondering like oh are they gonna make peter coyote hook up with d wallace yes right because they're like it's the family figure it's like finally a dude is over there with the mom but at least this movie doesn't have them hold hands or something. You know, and I was no. like glad it didn't, but wondering if it was going to and wondering how much was that me just trying to find a formula to anything like resolve single woman cannot be a factor in end of film. Exactly. And he's deviating from the expectations that lesser filmmakers have done following his footsteps. It's true. And like if I have a Spielberg quibble, and please don't yell at me mm-hmm. for having a Spielberg quibble, but if I have one, it's that when you put all his blueprints together, when you build the Spielberg neighborhood. Yeah. They all have, like, the same garage. I hear that. They're all, like, I have daddy issues. Like, every Spielberg movie is I have daddy issues. Mm -hmm. Like, the daddy issues are just built into the garage somewhere. (laughs) There's this, like, secondary movie that I find kind of fascinating over E.T., which is that this movie is basically, like, a middle finger to the dad who isn't there. Because here's this family, this awesome fucking thing, just lands in their backyard. They go through all this bonding. They love each other. It's wild. It's crazy. It's, like, the movie moment of of a person's lifetime. And their dad is not there. And, like, he's absent. He misses the whole thing. Mexico is not this cool. And at the end, what E.T. says to him is, I'll be right here. I mean, to me, that's like a middle finger to the dead. It's like E.T. like reaching out his little bony little finger and being like, (laughs) you missed it, Mexico sucker. But yet, I hear you. But what if E.T. is the divorced dad? 
What? What? You mean? Like, what if this is the guy who's like, you can't, you know, like, I'm your friend, but I'm not really part of the family. You know, don't tell mom I'm here. And then when he goes, you know, back to his apartment, you know, he's like, I'll be right here. Is E.T. a metaphor for like, you know, the divorced dad? He's like, he's like, he's like. Mrs. Doubtfire? Well, like he, you know, he's like, he's something special that he has a connection. You know, they have a, they have a connection of feelings. It's like, you know, the dad wants to be in the house, but he can't be, but he's got to go. He's got to go. He can't be there anymore. He's got to be in Mexico. I don't know. There was something about it. I was thinking about it. I was like, maybe E.T. is a metaphor for the divorced dad. For saying goodbye. I mean, I will say when there's that moment when E.T. gets really drunk and he's puttering around the house and he's like in a bathrobe and he's drunk on the couch. I was like, that's shitty dad. Right. Like E.T. steps into the role of like the horrible dad. Maybe that's who their dad was when he was at the house. Maybe he was a drunk and he was a wreck and D had to do everything. This is what I'm saying. E.T. is a divorced dad. Yeah. But it's like, you know, you have those flashbacks in like dramatic movies where it's like flashbacks. Back to your childhood, and their dad is a louse. Et yeah. is that louse in that little scene? In he's, that little he's moment, a, he's a dirtbag. Yeah, he's watching old John Wayne movies, drinking beers <laughs> in the middle of the day. Get a job, Dad. You know, I did think that the representation in the movie was interesting. I came from a uh, a divorced family. I mean, I'm sure many of you have, and I think there's something about this narrative. My dad was very involved. He's great, uh, but. I think there's something about seeing a family at this point in time where even seeing a divorced family was a little bit novel and kind of cool to as a kid to to be like, oh, I come from a family like that. It's, it's sort of representation on screen of something that you feel at certain points in my life very isolated by. Like, you know, like, oh, I, I, am I weird because my parents aren't together, you know? And I think that they kind of show that you don't need – to have the traditional family model to be a family. I will go one step further and say, you know, talking about representation, I would say this movie does a really bad job at showing anyone but white middle-class people. And I think there's like one African-American person in this film, and it's, you know, it could be anybody. It's just like, hey, stop that van. You know, it's, it's a very uh, nothing part. No. That's true. He's like, I'm going to make this global statement about the world. Mm-hmm. But from the white suburbs. I actually kept wondering watching it something kind of similar, but like a little maybe 80 degrees this way, mm-hmm. which is what did this film look like to people who didn't live in America? Right. Because the house – I mean I've been living in L.A. long enough now that I'm like that house is huge. Oh, that like, house that is – That is massive. Like I would think that Ameri- – like this movie seems like it played in every country around the world. I would be like Americans are rich as fuck. Oh, and they have cornfields in their backyard. I mean this yeah. is like a field of dreams backyard. Like I, I see that they're in the suburbs, but that does not exist – in that community, that kind yeah. of backyard. Forest and cornfield just in their, in their yard. They're not yeah. farmers. No. I mean, that is movie magic. But again, you know, it. I think that that kind of showing a backyard that doesn't quite exist, a house that maybe people don't live in. A closet it, I don't understand. Oh, yeah. It's like <laughs> most people have like – or I guess a lot of houses have like a bathroom that's adjoined by two bedrooms. This was a closet adjoined by two bedrooms, which is a, just a bad design choice. Yeah, they're like you have – Bunk beds. Yes. So you're conserving space in that way. However. You have a giant closet that Gertie can also get into from her side. I really want that closet. Oh, I love that closet. I mean, that closet's beautiful. But yeah, I can imagine if you're like not from super upper middle class America suburbs. Yeah. The world of E.T. just looks like a foreign planet. You know what I loved about the mom in this too is how frazzled she is without being an idiot. Right? Like there's a whole sequence where E.T. is drunk 
And, you know, she's missing it. It's a great slapstick, actually. It's a beautifully kind of directed scene. And again, going to what you said, silent. It's almost like a silent film. Like, she's walking over here. He's going over here. She's missing him at every given thing. But her business is based in being a mom, got home from work, trying to put stuff in the fridge. I think that Spielberg does a great job of playing um, that kind of single parent without making it buffoon-like and without putting too much of a fine point on it. It's true. Like, she has a lot of dignity, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, I love Dee Wallace in this. Oh, she's Maybe fantastic. that's one of the signs I'm becoming an older person, is I'm, like, shifted away from Henry Thomas, and I'm like, Dee Wallace, you're <laughs> cool. You're a good blonde. I like you. You know, there's this thing that happens with kid movies. You see it in, like, Shrek kind of stuff, mm-hmm. right? Where they're like, okay, we got to get adults to take their kids to this movie and not hate themselves, right? Right. I mean, you must have to see a lot of these. Well, right now, my kids are not into films. They find them to be too long. Oh, yeah. interesting. Like we watched Trolls the other day on a recommendation. And after like 20 minutes, he's like, this is too long. I was like, okay, well, wow, there we go. Show him Ben-Hur. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the way that a lot of bad movies do it is they're like kid humor, kid humor, toilet humor, whatever. And then for the mom, they're like, let's make a joke about Kim Kardashian. And you're like, that right. sucks. And it's just the two types of humor are existing on different planes. Like the moms aren't laughing at the toilet jokes yeah. and the kids don't get like the Kim Kardashian sex joke. You know, right. I feel like E.T. is just absolutely combined. Like everybody likes the same parts of every scene. I'm kind of obsessed with this idea of a four quadrant movie where it kind of appeals to everyone. Every demographic gets something. And I think the difference between a current four quadrant movie and an old school four quadrant movie, which E.T. is, is that E.T. is a fully realized idea that engages children and adults because it tells something that's universal. We're seeing one thing from Elliot's eyes and one thing from D. Wallace's eyes. We can put ourselves in Elliot's uh, shoes if we're a child or for an adult. And and I think what we're doing now is just going, well, here's one from column A and here's one from column B. Here's a you know potty joke. Here's a Kardashian joke, like you're saying. And you're getting these movies that, yes, they're checking off boxes, but they don't feel like a living thing. It just kind of feels like a like a, like a weird robot or something. That's yeah, like a, it's like the difference between giving somebody a salad, I guess, where you could pick out the things you mm-hmm. want or you pick out what you want to eat and then giving them a roast chicken. Yeah, you're yeah. right. I think what we keep on coming back to and what we're talking about is the writing of E.T. We're talking about these characters that are fully realized. Now, this movie was written by Melissa Matheson. And when I was doing research, I really wanted to try to find clips from people in the time the movie was released, because I find it to be more interesting to be in the moment than to be looking back at it, you know, 40 years later. So this is uh, Melissa talking about why she thinks she did a good job at writing this script. I think it's def- it definitely would have been different if a man wrote it. I think that that my relationship with children helped a lot. I have lots of children friends and lots of kids are over at our house a lot and I listen to the way they talk a lot and I think my relationship with kids helped and I think that that probably a man would have a different relationship than that so it's hard to say but I probably Stephen was the man in the movie I just thought her perspective was interesting and of course a female writer is going to have a different perspective than a male writer on family dynamics and stuff like that but I think that it's just interesting to hear her articulate why she felt more in touch with or how she came at the film, which is through the eyes of a kid, less of through the eyes of making an alien film, you know, or something like that. Yeah, like 
one of my favorite details in the script is when Drew Barrymore sees E.T. for the first time, the questions that she asks, mm -hmm. which seems so basic that I don't even think I would have thought that those would have been the questions she would ask right. you. Is he a boy or a girl? Is he wearing any clothes? And that's so simple. You wouldn't be like, what planet is he from? You know, she's right. going to these basic questions. And actually, talking about, like, the female point of view, I want to play this one scene from where when Elliot is going to school with his brother, because we got everything we're talking about in here. Right. We got weirdo kid language that makes kind of no sense, but also makes sense. But what I want people to listen for is, you know, there's this girl who, when Elliot gets drunk, he kisses at his school, this blonde. Right. But what I hadn't noticed in this scene is that the girl who uh, Elliot kisses is trying to get his attention the whole time, and it's not oh. working. Hey, Elliot, where's your goblin? <laughs> Shut up. Did he come back? Well, did he? Yeah, he came back. But he's not a goblin. He's a spaceman. Oh, he's an extraterrestrial. Where's he from? Uranus? Get it? Your anus? He doesn't get it, Ty. Get it? Your anus? He doesn't get it. This whole image. You're such a sinner supremus. Zero charisma. Sinner supremus. Zero charisma. Sinner supremus. Shut up, Greg. Sinner supremus. Zero charisma. You win. Her two high Elliots. I love it because... It's hard to imagine somebody being like, we need that in there, but you need that in there. It's yeah. this perfect little detail where that girl becomes a human being to us even more than she is to Elliot in that moment. 100%. Also, are you a cine-supremist? I don't know what that was. And <laughs> I and I, and when you hear it, but again, it's like language that sounds right. It, and it doesn't age badly. Like, I love Back to the Future uh, and there are certain things in Back to the Future that you that they say, especially in number two, where they're trying to come up with like future like disses, and you're like, oh man, like who's this Bojo? It's like, oh, what is that? Like what? Like <laughs> what are we doing here? Um, okay, but is penis breath the new cheese dick? Well, look, I mean, I think we have to put it as a honorable mention in our in our tracking of you know cheese dicks. But you know, penis breath, it, it's not the same. It's not the same, but it's it's definitely uh, you know. It's there. I mean, if we can be adult here for a second. Yes. Penis breath is kind of a bad insult. And these kids will realize that when they grow up and realize that if you talk to a girl that way, that girl is never going to make you happy. Oh, wow. Okay. Is that a little that. adult for the show? I'm you know sorry. What? No, it's fine. I think it's uh, we can go there. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, also, by yes. the way, if we're talking cheese dicks, you know somebody tweeted us that there's a musician called Richard Cheese. So his yes. name is Dick Cheese. But again... I would only say it's acceptable if his name was Cheese Dick. Okay. I'm being very strong on this. I mean, I, you know, this podcast needs integrity. And I don't want to go around just like giving points for penis breasts and dick cheese. Like I, I, we have to go right down the line. People expect this of us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I'm not going to waver on it. I'm sorry. So are you telling me that you don't want to hear Richard Cheese's version of Bohemian Rhapsody? Maybe at the end. Okay. Oh, but by the way, the penis breath line, Henry Thomas absolutely hated saying that. He got really embarrassed. He said that there are two parts of shooting E.T. that he hated. One was kissing the girl because he was like, I do not like girls. And the second part was saying penis breath. He got he was blamed it on Melissa, and he was like, I really hated that line. So maybe Melissa was a little off. <laughs> I watched another little behind-the-scenes clip where Melissa was saying that the kids would always be giving her notes, and they had a real, like, great uh, relationship where they would tell her, like, what worked and what didn't. But she said at a certain point I needed to be like, you're the actors, I'm the writer, say what I wrote. <laughs> I know in the Sixth Sense episode, I said to you, I wasn't as blown away by like Haley Joel Osment's performance as I think it was lauded when it first came out. I was like, oh yeah, kid actors, I think have now risen to this level and I expect that level of performance. But here, 
off the chart kid performances. I feel like they have captured regular kids being normal. And it goes back to what you said about, you know, is he wearing clothes? What sex is he? Everything that we just heard right there, this is regular kids being normal. And Spielberg did have this ability to get this type of performance. And I heard that the way he kind of did it was he kept a constant conversation going with the actors off camera. So he was talking to Elliot, and there's a lot of footage online of Spielberg kind of coaching Elliot through the scenes, but literally talking to him. That's why the performances are so good, because they feel like they're in life. They're living. They're they're happening as we are watching them. I believe that. I mean, have you seen the Henry Thomas audition video? Oh, it's amazing. We have to play a clip of this. Can't take him away. He's mine. But it's not my choice. The president asked me to come here and get him. I don't care what the president says. He's my best friend. And you can't take him away. Well, it's it's real possible, Elliot, that, that he'll come back and you can have him again. But we just want to talk to him and see where he came from and try to find out about other planets. And he he probably is the key to a lot of things that we have to know. But how do I know you're going to bring him back? He's got tears in his eyes. You know, at the end of this clip, you know, Spielberg famously kind of says, Okay, kid, you got the job. (laughs) (laughs) It's emotional. Watching it, it's emotional to watch him do it. I don't know how he does it. It actually freaks me out that Henry Thomas is able to do this. It actually, like, to me, if I was looking for aliens on Earth, I would asterisk Henry Thomas because of that. (laughs) He's amazing, and I think it's this connection and the way that Spielberg treated him like an adult but also like a kid. And there's all these great pieces of footage online of Spielberg directing Henry Thomas. I know I talked about it a little bit, but this is how he prepared Henry for a scene. And then, after touching the heart, E.T. is going to put his hands on your shoulders. And he's going to bring you in for a hug. And you'll hug this side of E.T. You'll hug on this side. And you'll just hug for a while. I'll just hug you for a while. And then... You'll separate, and E.T. will point right to your forehead, right between your eyes. And he says, right here. He says, I'll be right here. And you'll reach out your hand, you just sort of touch his cheek. And he has a little tear in his eye, just pretend there's a tear, then you'll wipe the tear away from E.T.'s face. And we'll play it that way. There's something about that level of energy, that tone of voice. I've worked on a lot of sets. I've directed kids. And I learned more about directing kids in that clip than anything that anyone has ever told me. Because it just is just walking them through, not treating them so much like an adult, but also letting them know, like, we'll get to that thing, like not giving them a line reading, but letting them react. But like that emotion that he's trying to get out of him in that scene, to me, the painful thing about watching E.T., and I was thinking about this too, because I just watched Pink Floyd The Wall, like on a big screen this weekend, is there's a moment in The Wall where... um, you realize that part of the trauma of this kid growing up is that when he was little, he found a rat and he the rat was really hurt and he tried to save the rat and he couldn't and the rat died. And to me, that's a feeling I totally get. I really fucked over like a hamster when I was a kid oh. and a parakeet. And it if 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 there's one thing in my conscience I almost wish I could purge, it is those two pets. And that's what E.T. is like on this epic level. Yeah. It's you have this pet. You love this pet. You try to teach this pet about the world, and it's dying anyways, and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, oh, my God. That's, like, the ultimate relatable. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Because that's an emotion we don't talk about with kids is that 
in movies, kids are usually like, I'm a perfect kid. I'm great. Mommy, why don't you love me? Like, what's wrong with the world? Why does war have to exist? Yeah. Whatever. You know, kids mm-hmm. are like that. But kids are, like, complicated, and kids do have to deal with death. A lot of kids have to deal with death early, you know? And yeah. people act like kids don't. And people act like kids don't fuck up things. And people act like kids, good kids, don't do bad things. Maybe I'm talking to younger me here. I'm no, like, I'm but, so sorry about my hamster. But, but, but that's part of you learning responsibility. You are who you are now based on how you reacted to those experiences that the little kid version of you made. You have to make those mistakes. I mean, hopefully it doesn't hurt anyone else, but there are certain things I look back on in my life as a child. I didn't know any better, but you make these things and and thankfully no one got hurt in those things. There are other situations where kids do get hurt and they have to live with that. I, I can't even imagine what that is like. Yeah, and if there is an arc, I mean, I think E.T. is a pretty simple plot. You know, it's mm-hmm. very straightforward. Alien shows up, save alien. But if there is an arc to it, it's that Henry Thomas goes from being this little kid who's not really trusted with anything except maybe getting the pizza from the pizza guy, and he fucks up that too. Right. To being responsible for this living creature and getting him home to being an adult. Uh, you know, one of the kids that almost got into this film but did not was Corey Feldman. Uh, mm-hmm. And Corey Feldman kind of falls into this category of, I think, more of the uh, precocious kid, you know, the kid who has the attitude, the kid, like you're saying, like th- that has a little bit more of this movie kid attitude. And I'm glad that he uh, wasn't in it because in a weird way, I think that the the fact that these kids are not super recognizable make this movie a little bit more timeless too. Uh, but Corey Feldman was going to be in the film. His part was rewritten and kind of eliminated. Um, and they put him in Goonies as kind of like a, oh, well, we'll get you in there next time. God, how bad would you be if you got cut out of E.T.? Oh, I mean, well, he got Goonies. So, you know, it's not that bad. That's true. But you're right. Corey Feldman is like Bugs Bunny. I mean, I feel like there was a moment. I remember being like a pretty young girl when Drew Barrymore was older than me and like was fucking up a lot in the public yeah. eye and how horrible people were about it. I mean, that we were treating her like yeah. the Britney Spears of the 90s. And I feel like there was a little bit of a tinge on E.T. because of that for a while, that people were like, oh, every time I watch it, Drew was so cute, but now look at her. Right. Now she's in rehab. And it's interesting. Like, now that Drew has kind of pulled herself out of it big time. I mean, I think right. Drew is always talented. I think she was always great. I think people should have, like, backed the fuck off of her when she was a younger yeah. kid. The movie is restored. And it's weird how the exterior lives of the actors affect the film. I agree. I think Drew Barrymore is an interesting case because – what is so engaging about her, what is so captivating about her, so cute about her, is how precocious and unaffected she is. So then all of a sudden she's on The Tonight Show. She's you know presenting at the Golden Globes. She's out and about. And I think the same influences that we have in watching the movie, like, I want to hang out with Gertie, you know, and I want to like, you know, it, you pull her down into this weird wormhole where she doesn't get to be a kid and she kind of falls in with the wrong people and kind of gets involved in stuff a little early. And you're like, how dare you? Yeah. It's like, no, no, you did it. You're the people who did it. Um, All right. So can I get into where I think I have an unpopular opinion about E.T.? Okay. Um, Does this movie resonate with kids anymore? I think it's a great movie. I loved watching it here. But I want to ask this question in the sense of, like, do kids know who the Beatles are anymore? Are we moving so quickly past everything in our past that we're not – this movie would not be something that kids would attach themselves to? I wonder. I mean, there is the strength in that Henry Thomas 
and um, Drew Barrymore are so young that they don't have cell phones. Even if they were right. alive today, they wouldn't have cell phones, right? right? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. probably, yeah. So at least there's not the where are the cell phones question. Right. Even though they did put those walkie-talkies in the, uh, <laughs> in the hands of the cops in the uh, re-release. Anyway. I wonder. I mean, I want to think that this is as timeless as The Wizard of Oz. You know, In a lot of ways, it basically is The Wizard of Oz. It's just mm-hmm. instead of Dorothy going to Oz, E.T. comes to Earth. Like, we're Oz. But I think Wizard of Oz is more timeless than E.T. Is that because it's fantastical? Yes. Okay. Because I think this movie is a drama disguised as a kid's film. I I, I believe it's slower. There's not that much about the alien. We don't know what's going on. There's not that much action adventure. Like, kids would have to sit down and really connect with it. I don't know if in 10 years this movie resonates with an audience that didn't see it originally. Now, Come at me. I'm not saying it shouldn't. I'm just saying I really was considering this in watching this movie. Like, does this movie hold up in that way? I wonder because the flip side of that question is the thing that I really worry about as a critic, which is are we adults ever going to let kids' movies be kids' movies anymore? Like, Mm -hmm. we make everything be for us. Right. You know, Star Wars is for us now. Mm -hmm. And Star Wars movies are for us, not kids. And – We've put our stamp on E.T. We put our stamp on everything. And we come in and tell kids that the new kids' movies that are coming out, we tell them they all suck and they're all stupid because they're not E.T. I don't think that this movie gets released now. If you were to hand in this script, a script that Kathleen Kennedy said, you know, when I read it, I knew it was special. But now that I have been decades in this profession, I realize just how special it was. Would that script not get noted to death. I, I I think it would. I don't think that these movies can exist anymore because I don't even know if kids will connect to this type of a slower film. Like the magical idea of like, we're waiting almost an hour and 40 minutes until those bikes take off in the air. I mean, and I, and I talk to parents who have kids who love Back to the Future. That really connects to them. And I talk to kids who love... Uh, even the original Karate Kid, although that's waning, and I think the Jaden Smith Karate Kid is even higher up on the list. You know, that's not a bad Karate Kid. I'll be honest; I kind of like that Karate yeah, Kid. Yeah, I, I, I have no issue with it. Um, but I just wonder if if this resonates with people younger than us, and for how much longer? Maybe it wouldn't have gotten noted to death in '82 only because it was a Steven Spielberg movie, right? And he could do anything he wanted. I mean, yeah. Steven Spielberg could literally do anything. He could be like. What if I uh, drank this Coke on screen, which is actually kind of what E.T. is for like a really long time. My Google is that there's so much ridiculous product placement in here. But he, Steven Spielberg and Melissa Matheson teamed up recently. They did the BFG. But it was like the shiny kid garbage that I don't like. Everything is too glossy. There's a lot of like crude humor for no reason. It was a little too sour and then a little too sweet. It wasn't this. You know. And that's these guys. Like they did it right. Like why can't they do it again? Why aren't they doing it again? What do we not know? BFG maybe is a weird mix of what we used to do and and what we're doing now. And it's like you have to kind of be all in one camp. And I think when you're all in one camp, it really works. And when you're all – when you're kind of mixing and matching, like I said, it's neither here nor there. Or maybe – Maybe this is a lesson and don't believe the hype. Maybe kids aren't that different. Maybe we just keep mm. worrying that we are. We're like guessing that kids have right. zero attention span, that they need louder, grosser, crasser, weirder, shinier, everything. So we're shooting ahead of them and they're just meeting us over there because that's the only place we're shooting. Right. You know, E.T. wasn't a dime a dozen 
when E.T. was made. E.T. is more of a dime a dozen now. You know, you could even go to like Lilo and Stitch is a bad version of E.T. Um, Isn't that the pattern of everything on our list almost? Yeah. You know, everything. French Connection, all of it. We're like, you were important. I don't know how I feel about you today. Well, I think this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the Sixth Sense episode where, you know, what is the purpose of this list? You know, yes, this movie is amazing, but is it still relevant? And when it ceases to be relevant, it doesn't mean that it ceases to, to be good. It just is less relevant. That's an interesting point, too, that it I just is. made. It, it, <laughs> I agreed with myself. <laughs> well, I agree with you, too. And that's why it's interesting to me that part of where I roll my eyes at E.T., you know, mm-hmm. briefly, but I roll my eyes at E.T., is that scene where Elliot is showing E.T. all the things in his bedroom and mm-hmm. is introducing him to culture. You know, we're yeah. talking about culture. So Henry is doing what we would do to something. We're like, here is our culture. And what annoys me about it is it's, you know, like, look, this is Greedo. This is Hammerhead. This is Lando Calrissian. This is Boba Fett. This is basically Spielberg being like, yeah, yeah, man. Hello. Yeah. I own the world now. Like, I'm cool. Like, well, me and my buddy George, we're awesome. He put that little Yoda in to kind of just, like, surprise George. He didn't even ask for permission, which is amazing, like, uh, that any movie could put in, like, Star Wars licensed property without any problem. Well, and, yeah, and when he does that, doesn't it look like E.T. recognizes Yoda? Yes. Yeah, and you're like, oh, hey, what? Oh. <laughs> I mean, um, but, okay, but there is a little bit of me that's like, I mean, it's the same way I felt when Ready Player One came out, this idea of Spielberg taking a lap around the culture. But I guess he deserves to more than anybody else. But, but here's I'm still my eyes at it. And my issue with Ready Player One is I know everyone's like, Steven Spielberg's the perfect person to direct this. And I always felt he is not because he created the culture. You can't have somebody making a movie about the culture he created. And as a matter of fact, one of the issues I really had with Ready Player One, which I did enjoy, um, was that they couldn't leave in all the things, all the contributions that he gave that are so in that book. He smartly was like, I can't do something that just like worship at the altar of me. You almost needed a younger director to make this film so we could look back at all of their heroes. Exactly. And also because in Ready Player One, I feel like we're supposed to feel, I hope we're supposed to feel, that a world with nothing but pop culture touchstones is a little bit stultifying. I agree. And... I think I think Spielberg maybe quietly is like, y'all should have made more more movies. I should have inspired you guys to make right. movies. Like I decided to interview Michelle Gondry, mm-hmm. who I love. He's one of my yeah. favorite brains. And his whole thing is like trying to get other people to make little budget movies. He sets up like museum installations where he tells people to make a movie in half an hour because his whole thing is everybody should be doing this. That's awesome. But, you know, Spielberg is like, you'll never do it as good as me. But no, but here's what I'll say. I was the age, or maybe a little bit younger, than Henry Thomas was when he did this movie. And what was in my room? Star Wars toys. It wasn't like it wasn't like he was pushing something that wasn't out there into culture. He was saying, what do kids play with? Star Wars toys. G.I. Joe toys, too, I'm sure. But to me, what kind of connected me to this world was going, those are the toys that I have in my room. Like, that's, that's what got me. And I think there is something so cool about that. And I love when I see films that represent, you know, without worrying about copyrights, like things that are actually in our environment. It's like Star Wars was huge to me. Like that's what I would have on my workbench. Awesome kick-ass room that he has. You know, by the way, picturing his bedroom, since I'm thinking about it now, it's a little noir isn't it? There's mm. the mini blinds. There's the lighting oh, yeah. coming through. Very it's a little bit double indemnity. And then he's like, 
Coke. See, we drink it. I'm like, okay, all right. But I, that just annoys me because I'm like, how much did Coke pay you for this? Well, you know what? Pez. I, I mean, Pez. Now our culture looks stupid. But again, this is what's going on. Like, you know, look, they famously wanted M and M's to be the treat that you know ET follows, and they said no because they thought ET was like too scary or something like that. You know, and then Reese's Pieces like, we'll do it. Yeah, I mean, um, when Reese's Pieces do it. Their sales went up sixty six percent. But then it's kind of weird. I, I think ET didn't give Reese's Pieces permission to use ET in their commercials because then <laughs> Reese's Pieces starts making commercials with this knockoff alien. Wait, wait, wait. Here he is. When you make a great tasting candy, word gets around. You want Reese's Pieces, do you? Ah, Reese's Pieces. <laughs> this is amazing. Who in the world was that? I don't know. Kind of looked like your cousin Willard. Reese's Pieces with the great peanut butter taste that's out of this world. Wow, that's hilarious. Like, they're just <laughs> so, I mean, like, what an F you. Uh, but, I mean, how cheap would it be to see E.T. in a commercial? So I don't think it's selling out because now... They, you would see E.T. in a commercial. You see that all the time. I mean, wasn't the Incredible Hulk like in like a Pepsi commercial like a year ago? Like literally the Ant-Man and the Incredible Hulk were in a Pepsi commercial. Well, yeah. And, you know, Ben-Hur, we were talking about it back then, that Ben-Hur was like a huge merchandising licensing deal for Ben-Hur stuff. Yeah. Wizard of Oz too. Huge merchandising deal for Wizard of Oz stuff. But yeah, is E.T. where we just start being like, okay, this popular thing sells every popular thing and that all of those other popular things sell it and it's the cycle of selling. Well, but isn't that, then I would say that it's not that though because they didn't let the character be bastardized by it. They just put things in it. That's true. You're right. You know what I'm saying? You're it's right. like, they're, right. they're, I don't think Coke is giving Steven Spielberg money. I think Steven Spielberg is going like, can we use this in our movie? Because it's what America rallies behind. Like, You don't single- think so? No, I mean, isn't there that whole There's thing? There's like so many shots of Coke. I'd be shocked. Also, Hold on, I'm gonna, I'm gonna I like that when, with D. Wallace, like our lovely D. Wallace, who looks so hot, by the way, when she's in that cat dress. Yeah. That D. Wallace drinks Coors. I was like, you go, D. Wallace. Okay. By the way, was D. Wallace, D. Wallace having a party that no one came to in that house? Like she's dressed up. There's a lot of candy around, not like at the door, like around. I'm like, what? did she get stood up? She's like, I mean, the free range parenting in this, I admire a oh, lot. Yeah. Not being a parent and not, not getting to have an opinion on it. I'm like, yeah, let the kids run around. It's cool. So I know that we're all here on Unspooled because we're trying to get really, really smart about super, super classic, awesome movies that have been voted amazing. There are no Marvel movies on that list, but I know that there are definitely some Marvel heads out there. Because if you're alive and you're a movie fan in the year of our Lord 2018, you've definitely seen a Marvel film. But you did not know, perhaps, that Marvel has never had a scripted podcast before until now. Marvel has just released their very first ever scripted podcast, and it is called Wolverine the Long Night. And you can hear it right now. Here's how Wolverine the Long Night begins. First, a fishing boat is found off the coast of Burns, Alaska, and then two special agents, Sally Pierce and Ted Marshall, arrive to find out who or what killed the crew. Their primary suspect? You might have heard of him. He's a drifter 
named Logan. But the local police won't cooperate, and there's more going on in Burns than meets the eye. That sounds like an awesome podcast noir. Who is Wolverine, you ask? Well, dun-dun-dun, no other than Richard Armitage. You know him as Thorin from the Hobbit movies. Oh, as the special agents, we've got Celia Keenan-Bulger and Otto Asando as the two agents. But really, there's basically, like, everybody in here. you got Bob Balaban, you got Chris Gethard, you got Scott Adsit, you got everything. You have never heard a podcast exactly like Wolverine the Long Night Before because it's got sound design, it's got acting, it's even got directing. Like, I don't get directed on Unspooled. I'm jealous. I think we need a director. We have the world's best producer, but we definitely could use a director here. And by the way, to get a little bit more specific about that cool podcast sound, the entire show was recorded with this thing called an ambisonic microphone. What ambisonic means is it captures 360 degrees of audio. So you will create like this completely immersive world of sound all around you. So that means if Wolverine is fighting somebody on the floor, it actually sounds like the sound is coming from beneath you as though you were watching him fight on the floor. That's crazy. And if you want to see how all of this works, what Wolverine the Long Night is doing is it has a website where you can check out everything, like behind the scenes videos where people are literally fighting and wrestling and biting each other's legs just for the audio. So how do you get access to all of this? Well, let me tell you. You can listen to Wolverine the Long Night for free right now in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can check out all this behind the scenes stuff at wolverinepodcast.com, wolverinepodcast.com for more information. Okay, I think it's time to talk to somebody who's like crazy, 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 crazy smart about all things alien. And that would be Dr. Seth Shostak. And Seth Shostak, oh my god, I'm like so excited he said yes to be on the show. He is the senior astronomer for the SETI Institute. And SETI, if you guys don't know, stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Life Institute. Um, And we're let's just ask him everything. Let's see if we can get some like real deal scoop on aliens from him. Okay, Seth, I want to start you with the biggest question. Is there life on other planets? Well, the answer to that question, Amy, is we don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> we, we think there is, because if not, then, you know, as uh, Jodie Foster would have said, it's a tremendous waste of space. There are about a trillion planets in our galaxy. It's hard to believe that all of them are sterile. And even if you think that, well, there's, there are a trillion other galaxies, each with a trillion planets. And so uh, unless there's something truly miraculous about the Earth, uh, we've got plenty of cosmic company. Well, let me ask you what you think would happen if there was some sort of contact with an alien creature. I mean, we just watched E.T., and clearly uh, the government gets involved on a very uh, intense level. Do you, what do you think the protocol would be? Would we, would we be reverent, or would we want to be capturing this creature or, uh, or alien? Well, look. Uh, in the film E.T., uh, little E.T. and his buddies came to Earth to pick some plants. And in the end, they eventually, <laughs> they ended up playing with the kids. I don't know if they would have mounted a, an interstellar expedition just to do that, but apparently they did. Uh, you know, that is an encounter of, if you will, the third kind, where, you're, where you actually meet the aliens. They actually land in, I mean, maybe New Mexico, just to name a random place. And uh, <laughs> They want to interact with us or maybe go to a good Mexican restaurant. Who knows? But, look, there's not going to be any protocol anymore. I mean, you know, for us to capture them or take them uh, hostage or something, that's, that's a bit like saying that, you know, what the Arawak Indians of the Caribbean should have done when Columbus landed in 1492, they should have taken them prisoner. They should have just grabbed them. They should have had a protocol in place to any Europeans that land here, let's just surround them and take them away. Now, they might have actually been able to do that. 
but we're not going to be able to do that with any aliens that come here because if they can come here, their te- technology is so far in advance of ours, it would be like, uh, well, the Arab Walk Indians taking on, uh, you know, the modern U.S. military. They're not going to win. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on, Seth. Are you telling me you've never even just, like, lying in bed in the middle of the night thought about what you would do if you got that call that there was an alien living in a kid's closet? If there was an alien living in the, that would be job security for me, Amy, and I would find it <laughs> actually gratifying. Uh, but I don't uh, actually think about that because, I, to begin with, closet life is not what it's uh, cracked up to be. <laughs> uh, and, and, and beyond that, I, <laughs> just, I just don't think they're here or coming here. Now, in that opinion, I am, uh, you know, at odds with about one third of the American public, which does think that they're here, but I don't. So tell me a little bit about why you got into this field and, and what are you looking to get out of it? Well, look, the, the thing that interests me the most, of course, is the question of life in space. I mean, after all, that's my job. So, you know, but, but I only do it because it's interesting. It's interesting and we have a chance of finding it uh, probably within 20 years. I, I would venture to say that. And it may be that we only find life in our solar system, you know, some pond scum somewhere else, uh, maybe on Mars or Callisto, Ganymede, Europa, Titan, Enceladus. These are all moons of Jupiter and Saturn and any of them could have life, but that would be, you know, microscopic life. Uh, I'm also interested um, and prim- primarily interested in intelligent life like you see in the movies. They very seldom make films about pond scum coming to Earth. Uh, there have been some, but not, not many. The blob is kind of like pond scum. but Yeah, but that blob was pretty clever, you got to admit. You know, <laughs> if we went to the Capitol, I don't know. Well, from E.T.'s morphology, like what would you extrapolate that his home planet looks like? Well, you can't always tell from a morphology what their home planet looks like, right, can you? I mean, but the morphology that you see in the movies, what you can tell, you can tell where they come from. And the answer is West Los Angeles because <laughs> they, they all look pretty much the same. I mean, they're all little gray guys with big eyeballs and no hair, right? Yeah, but, but his right. legs are so short. It makes me wonder if he comes from a planet where you don't do that much walking. It could be a, a planet with a really strong gravity, and, you know, it's hard to, to, to grow very tall because uh, your, your muscles have to be too strong. So do you believe that there could be creatures that are not microscopic, that, that are in some way humanoid or uh, similar to us? Well, they could be similar to us in the sense that maybe their biochemistry is similar. That may not interest you terribly much, but maybe their intellect is similar or you know, exceeds ours. After all, you know, intelligent life has the uh, possibility of, for one thing, maybe spreading out or maybe even going to another world, right? And you'll, you'll find that the Ponscom uh, has a very limited space program. They don't do much in that area. And as a result, they're not likely to go visit another planet. <laughs> well, I mean, we are intelligent life, depending well, on who you ask. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we haven't been able to find anything that resembles us. So there could be, in the universe, that same kind of thing happening. You're saying that other aliens on other planets are just at our level where we don't know how to exactly, do it Exactly, yeah. That, that, that would be very, very coincidental. Okay. Right? Okay. <laughs> you know, throw a dart at a chart, and, and it has the whole history of Homo sapiens going back 300,000 years. Right. What are the chances you're going to hit the part of that chart that represents today within, say, 100 years? Well, one part in a third of a million. You're just going to hit something that's <laughs> typical, you okay. know, where we're just sort of hunting <laughs> things on the savanna. I mean, I don't mind if we show up on another alien planet during a different point in their timeline because the idea of giant saber-toothed tiger aliens would be kind of awesome. Well, let me ask you this. How do you feel about the way scientists are portrayed in E.T.? 
Yeah, well, I actually, I was talking about that yesterday over in Berkeley, California. There was a conference on science education. And when I was a kid, you know, the scientists, and there were scientists in the films, usually in these creature feature films, and they were, you know, little short, bald guys wearing white lab coats running around. We've need, we need to save the monster for science, right? They were always getting in the way. So that was the picture that uh, we got of scientists, you know, uh, for I think for most of the history of sci-fi in the cinema, namely that scientists were generally in the way they were never the heroes of the piece. The heroes of the piece were, you know, reporters or whatever, and not the scientists. But that, that's changed a little bit. Today, being a nerd is not so uh, detrimental to your social life. Do you feel that the fascination with space is still there? I think as a kid, I grew up loving space, but I don't know. Is that still something that's going on? Uh, I, I do think that uh, the public's interest in space is somewhat unabated. I don't know that it's really gone down. Okay. It's always it's always been a fairly small fraction of the public that, that knows much about what NASA is doing. But you go into any classroom at any age, you know, they, they, they could be kindergartners, they could be college kids, and say, all right, how many of you kids, if you want to call college students kids, how many of you kids think that there are aliens out there and every hand will go up? That isn't true for the adults necessarily, right. but it is true for it is true for young people. Well, have you met any of your younger colleagues in SETI, like in their twenties and thirties and forties, who got into space because of ET? I certainly got into astronomy because of the movies. That's a fact, and uh, I've spoken with many people about how they got interested in this field, this this discipline, and the the things they mo- mention most of the most of the time are indeed television, movies, and museums, or planetaria. And what was the film that really got you? Uh, probably Destination Moon. I saw that. I was very, very young, oh, but it made a big uh, impression on me. That was uh, uh, produced by a guy by the name of George Pal. George Pal was a Hungarian puppeteer, and he made that film in several other sci-fi classics from the 50s. Wait, but- what do you think of 2001 A Space Odyssey? Well, that was, I think that that was a kind of a transformative picture, too, because uh, in it, the aliens, you know, aren't coming to Earth to uh, trash Los Angeles, even though, you know, from the point of view of those of us here in Northern California, might not be a bad idea. Oh, but, my God, Seth, hold on. I liked you up until now. <laughs> uh, well, listen, uh, nobody's a greater fan of, uh, you know, Eagle Rock or Glendale than I am. But <laughs> the facts are that uh, this was a different kind of film, you know. Because it had a different kind of idea, and it was also very credible. In other words, a lot of it was done in a way where you could think, yeah, yeah, that's possible. A lot of sci-fi isn't terribly credible, but this film was. I know there are a lot of alien films out there, but it seems like Contact is probably the most realistic for your field? Well, it's probably the best film for representing the SETI Enterprise. I don't think that's terribly surprising, of course, because... Uh, Carl Sagan, who wrote the novel, I think it was 1983, uh, wrote the novel and, of course, started to consult on the film. Unfortunately, he died during the production. But uh, obviously, he knew the science. So the science was pretty much right to the extent that it was science. I mean, there are parts of the film that are science and there are parts of the film that are fiction. Hmm. And the fiction ones are fiction. But nonetheless, I think that in terms of representing how we're looking for E.T., yeah, it was the best, best one going. I was a consultant for that film. I've, I've been a consultant for quite a, quite a number of sci-fi films. I mean, when you consult, what are the questions that directors really want to ask you? Well, there are only three that they ask every time. Uh, usually they want you to solve a, a, uh, 
a technical problem for them, actually. But but the questions they most generally ask are, you know, why are the aliens here? Because in the movies, they very often come here. So they want to have some reason for them to come here. The second question they ask is, what weapons will they have? You can understand why they would ask that. And the third question they ask is, what do they look like? As if I know. But that's those are the questions they ask all the time. Well, you just wrote an article for the New York Times in 2015 called... Should we keep a low profile in space? You know, maybe raising the argument that maybe we shouldn't be like sending out pop records and Beatles albums and and symphonies into space trying to get aliens to visit us. Maybe we don't want them to know we're here. Yeah, well, that's a very it's, it's funny, but it's a very controversial topic because there are some people who would like to broadcast into space. They think, you know, we're doing all this listening, and that's indeed what the SETI Institute does. We listen. We don't broadcast anything. But, you know, you could. You could just, you know, aim a, a radio beam at some nearby star, and instead of sending them a Beatles song, as NASA did once, uh, just say, hey, we're the Earthlings, and we'd love to get in touch. You know, you could just do that and hope to get a response. The trouble is most stars are quite far away, so it'll take a long time before you get a response, if you get one at all. But there are other people who say, forget that part of it. The real problem is that it's dangerous because you've tipped them off that we're here. And if they tend to be aggressive, if they are aggressive, you know, they'll, they'll uh, put together their battle fleet and send it to Earth and, you know, blow up the planet just on a bet. Uh, I, I don't find that very credible in terms of being a theory, but you don't, might not want to take the risk. The only thing is, of course, we are broadcasting into space all the time anyhow because of the radars at our airports, just to name one thing. I have to ask this, and I'm worried about what you're going to say to me for asking you this, but should any of our listeners discover an alien, what should they do? Well, people call me up every day, and many of them have claimed that they've discovered aliens. So uh, in, in that case, I, I usually suggest, I mean, to begin with, why are they calling me about it? But the other thing I suggest is, well, did you make any pictures? Mm. Right? Did you have any photos? So you're one of those scientists who like proof and, uh, and research and, uh, and, and, and solid theories. Oh, one of those scientists yeah. who likes proof in science. <laughs> well, look, I mean, you know, the, the, in science, what counts is not your opinion, but the data, right? One-third of the public thinks that the aliens are here on Earth. One-third. Right? Wow. It's not 1%. It's one-third, okay? I mean, it's the same percentage that believe that uh, their ghosts are real and stuff like that. It, it, it would be extraordinarily interesting if it were true. But I don't think it's true. I don't think the data is, are, are very good. But what's well, going on with this news cycle in the last year where they're saying yes. that we have seen aliens? Well, but who's saying that? The New York Times? Didn't they write an yeah. article about how we have seen aliens? Yeah. No, the New York Times did have a front-page article. It was below the fold, but it was front-page, uh, in December, in which they reported on a uh, secret Pentagon study to right. investigate strange aerial phenomena. Uh, in other words, UFOs, right? And uh, they ran it. It cost $22 million, and after five years, they shut it down. Why did they shut it down? Well, what they say is because it didn't find anything very interesting. But there is, I guess there are two videos that you can find online without right. much trouble that, uh, you know, show something funny seen or photographed by the infrared camera on some Navy uh, fighter planes. And uh, indeed, they're, they're interesting videos, but they, <laughs> I think it's going a little bit far to say they are conclusive proof that we're being visited. Well, this has been so fascinating to talk to. I mean, you know, in a way... You've crushed a little bit of our hopes of finding little green men, but I think you've also just reignited how exciting it is to see this vast, unexplored territory that you are, you know, 
trying to figure out what is out there. And I think it would be amazing to find pond scum. I think, you know what? We should make a pond scum movie. It wouldn't be as cute as E.T., but I feel like maybe it's uh, more realistic. <laughs> yes, and everybody could relate because, after all, just about everybody has encountered pond scum, yeah. especially in the bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. It's been a joy to talk to you guys. Okay, by the way, we talked to Seth like last week, and in the time between when we talked to Seth last week and this week that the ET episode is coming out, uh, we found out that Seth was like super hardcore holding out on us because SETI just announced this week that their scientists have discovered 72 signals from a quote-unquote alien galaxy that is 3 billion light years away. And what they are theorizing is that these signals they're getting that they say they can't quite understand might be the sign that in this alien galaxy, there is intelligent life that has created this thing called, like, a light wind, which is a way of transportation. Anyways, these signals, they are theorizing, come from something very smart over there that has come up with a way to come closer to us, possibly. And uh, Dr. Seth didn't tell us any of that. So, you know, trust no one. This episode of Unspooled is brought to you by Stitch Fix. And now you've probably heard of Stitch Fix, but just in case... Here's all your info. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service. And what that means is when you sign up for Stitch Fix, you get paired with this personal stylist who asks you all sorts of questions. You know, you talk about what kind of clothes or shoes or accessories you'd like. You talk about your body. You talk about your budget. You talk about your lifestyle. Are you a high heel person? Are you a low heel person? Are you jeans? Are you skirts? What's your work life like? You give your whole personal life to this personal stylist. And in return, that personal stylist personally handpicks five items to send to you right to your door. From there, you try on what you got. You, if you like anything, you pay for that. And if you don't like it, the rest of it, you return whatever the rest of it is. And they take care of all your shipping, the exchanges, the returns. It's always free. It's kind of perfect for somebody like me who just tends to do a lot of, like, stressed out, I think that looks good, click and buy things from the internet. And then, you know, they just show up and they don't fit at all. But what's awesome about Stitch Fix is it's actually not like a subscription service. I mean, I know you guys are probably used to, like, oh, you sign up and this just box shows up every month whether or not you want it. That's not how Stitch Fix works at all. You sign up and you can receive your scheduled shipments. And if you want a fix, you get a fix. And if you don't want a fix, you don't have to get a fix. And their styling fee is only 20 bucks for this personal stylist who picks out something for you. And you know what that 20 bucks actually goes to as well? If you keep anything from the box, that 20 bucks gets applied to whatever you keep. So you get this advice and you get a discount on whatever you like. It's kind of perfect. I actually know a couple of friends who work for Stitch Fix on the personal shopper end. And uh, they're some of the most stylish people I know. So I trust them very much with your styling needs. So if you want a wardrobe boost that's tailored for you, that doesn't take a lot of time, where you feel like you're really seen, you're really seen, man, by the stylist who's going to, you know, Mix it up a little bit. She's going to give you a couple of things you like and maybe a little thing that makes you go like, oh, I didn't know I was this sort of person. You can sign up to Stitch Fix right now. Just go to stitchfix.com slash unspooled and you'll actually get an extra 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash unspooled to get started today. I do want to call it one thing and I know, you know, I don't like to get into nitpicks on this show, but Spielberg does make a couple choices here that are questionable. For example, when the um, the team of scientists show up at their door, they're in full fucking spaceman costumes, not like hazmat suits. They're in like like I'm going to the moon in space shuttle. Co- like, and I'm not going to knock. I'm coming through the window. Oh, the mini blind. Yes, I mean, and it's beautifully done visually. I mean, it's 
As a directorial choice, I agree with it 100%. As something that is based in a movie that is very real up until this point is total bullshit. I mean, they're in spaceman outfits. Uh, But it contributes to this idea that none of the adults are individuals. Mm -hmm. They're all faceless from the beginning to this part. They are just faceless, faceless monsters. And also there's this idea of just uniforms as a distancing tool. Yeah. You know, which is true. Like you see a group of people in a uniform and they become a herd. They are not a character. Well, it's so interesting because – you are also so in the perspective of Elliot, which is a young kid who probably is blending all these faces together. I mean, the first time you see E.T. is through Elliot's eyes. Like You're seeing it when Elliot sees it. You know, you're seeing him in shadow. You're getting an idea of him. But the first time you see that face. So I think he does a great job of really just showing you how kids hear and see everything. It's true. Like, I don't believe that E.T. is a point of view film where we're we're questioning it like Taxi Driver, like Mm -hmm. how much of this is real. But I could imagine an adult, Elliot, being like, it was crazy. They came in through the windows. Yeah. And it feels like— They were in spaceman costumes because in his mind, that's what a hazmat suit is. Exactly. Um, Another nitpick I have, Mm -hmm. um, I never noticed it until now. When they take off on the bikes, all the kids still pedal. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, why? You're flying. You're like, you don't need to pedal anymore. What are you pedaling? And and it's so funny to see them. I was like, I wonder if at one point they were like, don't pedal, but it looked too weird. <laughs> but they're all pedaling real hard. And, um, you know, it's uh, it just made me laugh. It really, it really, really made me laugh. Okay, well, my tiny nitpick yeah. is when um, Elliot and E.T. first go flying over mm-hmm. the moon. And uh, he's got the blanket wrapped around him yeah. and he's not flapping at all. Like, oh, that's it's hilarious. just airless. It's like airless. Back. It's like when the kids, it's like, oh, when okay. it's like when Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling fly through the air in La La Land in the planetarium and they do that same kind yeah. of shot. They're just absolutely stiff. Their legs are totally stiff. They look <laughs> like a ballerina that was snapped out of a toy box. And there's like, hello. And there's absolutely <laughs> no life to that scene. That moonshot, the, the shot that has become kind of synonymous with Amblin Entertainment, uh, you know, Elliot and E.T. flying over the moon, was shot actually against a real moon. Uh, they really wanted to get a real moon, and they shot it over the course of seven days to kind of get the exact right lighting for that scene. There's something so beautiful and simple about that image. And again, if we're going back to that idea that this movie is a silent film, it is probably, if you ask anyone to think of an image of E.T., that would be one of the first, you know, one or two. Wow, and I love that we go pretty soon after from that scene to E.T. in a river getting attacked by a raccoon, which is maybe my favorite scene. <laughs> oh, and that's where E.T. looks the worst. I mean, E.T., if... if E.T. looks alive, and that looks like someone, like, dropped him off of a, a truck. Like, like, the production vehicle was like, oh, there's E.T. He he is so rubbery in that moment, they didn't even try to hide it. Yeah, he's all white. He looks like, you know those sausages that have the white coating on oh, them? Oh, like yeah, the like the, yeah. Yeah, he looks like one of those. A piece of salami. But then, like, our last image of E.T. before he flies away, he's got the robe on, he's in the back of the van, his heart is glowing. He is straight up a religious icon. He is straight up, like, oh, sacred wow. heart Jesus. He is like, yeah. love me. Y'all maybe are sitting on this planet. Doctors are scary, but I got this. I'm like the I'm like your vision of hope. You know someone else who was extremely moved by this movie, um, Mr. Neil Diamond, who you know the song "Turn On Your Heartlight." That is about E.T. Wait, I don't know the song. Can you sing it? Like, turn on your heartlight, let it shine wherever you go. Make the whole world yeah, that song. I don't know all the lyrics, but that is about E.T. Neil Diamond <laughs> saw E.T. was so emotionally moved that he went home and recorded 
Turn on your heart light. By the way, I totally knew that song. I just wanted to see if I could make you sing. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's listen to Neil Diamond singing a little bit better. Turn on your heart light In the middle of a young boy's dream Don't wake me up too soon Gonna take a ride across the moon I talked earlier about a sequel, and did you know that Steven Spielberg and Melissa Matheson came up with a concept of a sequel called Nocturnal Fears, and Elliot and his friends were going to be kidnapped by aliens that were at war with E.T.'s uh, race of aliens, and E.T. comes back and helps uh, save Elliot. Which That's like Transformers. And by the way, doesn't that suck? That sucks. It, it's, it's a terrible idea. It's not – I mean – E.T. is a sequel-less movie, in my opinion. Like, as a kid, I wanted to see a sequel. I wanted to go to E.T.'s home planet. Like, but you don't need it. And as a matter of fact, I got it when I got to ride my one of my favorite theme park rides, the E.T. ride at Universal Studios. Amy, did you ever ride the E.T. ride? I must have. I you must get on have. bicycles, and I you fly have. up into the sky, and you go to E.T.'s home world, and at the end, he thanks you because you gave them your name at the beginning. He goes, thank you, Paul. I must Thank have you, done that. Amy. It's one of the best rides. I mean, I, I hate love it. bicycles, but I that sounds very You're in a bunch of bicycles together. By the way, speaking of his voice, uh, E.T.'s voice, do you know who did this? This is the funniest thing. It's this woman, Pat Welsh. She's this elderly woman who lived in Marin County, California, and she smoked two packs of cigarettes a day, and it gave her voice this quality of E.T. There's clips of her online just reading the lines, and she sounds like E.T. Like, that's it. Um, you know, she spent nine and a half hours recording all of her parts. She was paid only 380 bucks for her services. They also used, like, a bit of Deborah Winger's voice. I don't know how that came in, and uh, Ben Burt's sweeping wife was in there, and... Uh, and a burp from Ben Burtt's like USC film professor, uh, as well as raccoons and sea otters. But Do you all think the that dialogue professor was like, "That's my burp." Oh, I mean, I would be like telling everyone that was my burp. <laughs> well, let's hear a little bit of Pat Welsh. A young man came over to me and introduced himself, and said, "Did I always speak in that low voice?" And I said, "Yes, it's the only voice I have." Meet Pat Welch, the voice of ET. I wouldn't say he was just a taskmaster, I would say he was a perfectionist. Actually, you know what just occurred to me looking at this picture of mm-hmm. Pat Welch is that she kind of looks like my grandmother who also smoked a lot. Right. And now I'm kind of backdating this part of the movie where E.T. is in the hospital and thinking, oh yeah, that's a kid when their grandparents are sick visiting them. And it's a bunch of doctors and you're freaked out and you don't know what's happening. And E.T. does kind of look like your grandma. Oh, that's so sweet. So E.T., He's everything. He's a grandma. He's a divorced dad. He's a dog. I like this character. Um, And maybe the reason why he was everything was because it was the 80s. And in the 80s, everything was going on. And you know what that means? It's time for some year Year facts. The year, 1982. Uh, The cost of a gallon of gas was 91 cents. A new car, the average price of a new car, $7,983. If you wanted to buy a Sony 19-inch color TV, it was about $499. Um, This is the year that the smiley was invented. That emoji, the beginning of that emoji in email. Uh, Scott Fallman from Carnegie Mellon, he 
use that as an emoticon, as a, a way of expressing emotion. Wow, thus beginning my nervous habit of ending every email with 12 exclamation points and an emoji. <laughs> um, Michael Jackson releases his second uh, solo album, Thriller, huge hit. Uh, so there's mass culture everywhere. Exactly. Graceland's opening to the public for the first time. And this is the year where movies like Rocky Three come out, On Golden Pond, Porky's, Officer and a Gentleman, Star Trek II, Poltergeist, Annie... Uh, Chariots of Fire, Gandhi. This is this year's a big year for culture. You're right. I mean, uh, Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder did Ebony and Ivory. Uh, you got, you know, Chicago with Hard to Say I'm Sorry, Survivor with Eye of the Tiger on TV. People were watching Magnum P.I., Dynasty, Hill Street oh Blues, God. and Knight Rider. I mean, the first CD player was sold in Japan. The Weather Channel debuted on the air. And Time Magazine named the computer the man of the year. Good God. Yeah, it's a big year. I mean, this is like a, this is an everything. Like if you think of eighties that you could probably take this year out and be like 1982 is the eighties. Yeah. I mean, this is basically being like, we're here, bitches. It's the future. Yes. We're going to have alien movies with product placement. It's going to be great. You're going to listen to music wherever you go. Ah, it's great. And we're going to say now that you don't get to like anchovies, but I like anchovies. Sorry. I'm still, I'm (laughs) mad that they don't like anchovies in ET. Um, well, do you have a question for me about is there a Simpsons? Of course I do. Of course you do. Is there a Simpsons? Yes, there is. Uh, here's the Simpsons that I pulled. This is from an episode where Young Lisa Simpson has been making a quilt. She's been making a quilt of all the musicians that matter to her in her life. Her finger is very calloused, and she reaches out to her mom for emotional empathy. Mom, I finished my patch. It depicts the two greatest musical influences in my life. (coughs) On the left is Mr. Largo, my music teacher at school. He taught me that even the noblest concerto can be drained of its beauty and soul. And on the right is Bleeding Gums Murphy. He taught me that music is like a fire in your belly that comes out of your mouth. So you better stick an instrument in front of it. Hmm. And look. They touch fingers and then the dog drinks out of the toilet. (laughs) So, Amy, it's number 24 on AFI's top 100 list. Do you believe that this is rightly placed? Yes. I, I don't know why there's so much hesitancy in my voice. I think I'm fighting against my modern view of surely nothing we do can be that important. Right. But this movie is so huge on the list to meet everything. I don't know I don't know a world without E. T. Undeniably this movie belongs on the list. I think we both agree that. But I don't know if it is as relevant as it once was. I think it was a cultural touchstone to us, but I wonder as we get further and further away if it continues to be that. When I went to go see the live performance of E.T. at the Hollywood Bowl, there weren't many kids there. And and I and I talked to a lot of kids about movies that I've watched and and that they've watched. And this movie is not coming up as often as others. It doesn't mean that it doesn't belong on the list. It just means like, is it placed maybe too high on the list. I don't know. Or do we need to show it to kids more? Yeah. I mean, look, I I, I think it it still holds up, but I wonder if it feels passe to kids, if it doesn't have the things that we want in it or what kids expect to be in it. I wonder, because so much of that emotional thrust hasn't gone anywhere. Parents are splitting up. Yeah. Kids are fighting with their brothers and sisters. Kids are... Uh, 
my I made my hamster a paraplegic, and oh, I, I've never oh, gotten over it. I've boy. never gotten over it. That's I tough. put the hamster in the ball on the kitchen counter, and I tried to get a sandwich, and it rolled off. And I have never forgiven myself for that. Oh, Amy, I had to get that. You out are there. forgiven. You I are forgiven. It's there. not your fault. It's bad. Well, here's the thing that I will just continue to hammer in. Uh, I did this show called NTSF SDSUV, and when we were coming up with the third season, I was like, oh, I want to do a take on E.T., but from Peter Coyote's perspective. What if that's how we told E.T.? So it's basically the government agency coming in to steal the alien from the kid. And we did that episode, and it had all these like kind of like little tips of the hat to E.T. Oh, my God, we're flying. We're really flying. Wow. It's amazing. What? That's it? Like a foot off the ground. What the hell? Sounds like something slightly wondrous is happening. And it was one of the few episodes we did where people were like, what don't, like, didn't even understand that it was referencing E.T. And that was the first moment that I kind of realized, like, oh, wow, I wonder if E.T. is relevant anymore. I don't know. Or maybe E.T. became so big in the culture that that story of a guy looking for an alien is so omnipresent. You're mm. like, what's the point? Yeah. I love this movie. It's amazing. I, you know, will always love Steven Spielberg. And watching this movie was like coming home. It was amazing to me. Phone home. Uh, Phone home, indeed. Well, so we should figure out what we're doing next week. Oh, yes. Let's roll the die. All right, Paul. It is that time. I have our trusted friend, the 100-sided die, who we have to be very nice to right now for a while because uh, we screwed up. All right, here we go. da 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 Twenty-seven. I have my list right here. That is High Noon. Oh, we're going to get Cowboy on this. Actually, wait. I have an idea straight away for what High Noon is because um, I'm guessing this might be one that people are a little unfamiliar with. Um, maybe. Maybe I'm wrong. But how about this for our call to action? Why don't we do an old-fashioned call in, tell us what you think the plot of High Noon is, but bonus points if you can do it in a nice Wild West accent. I want to hear, like, some down-home storytelling. I'm on the front porch. We're drinking moonshine, talking about Han Noon and that great old classic story starring whoever and whatever, and that happened, and I don't know, and we'll find out next week. Um, So give us your best cowpoke Han Noon retelling. Call us at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824 for Han Noon. Amy, we've made it to the end of the episode, which means you've promised me something that I didn't even know I wanted to hear. But, uh... You want a little bit of dick cheese? Is that what you're telling me? Yes. Give me some dick cheese. Take it away, dick cheese. Mama just killed a man. Put a gun against his head. Pulled my trigger, now he's dead. Ow! Mama, life had just begun. But now I've gone and thrown it all away. Mama, mama, mama. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season 3 has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, Season 3 is a great jumping on point, and we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> 
Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season 3 of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean... Every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.